0: Good evening. Welcome to the continuation of the 12th Annual Faith and Life Lectures season. I always find it hard to believe it's been going on that long. This is tonight our 59th event, if you can believe that. Um, I'm Pastor Tim Westermeyer, and it's my privilege to welcome you here tonight. I'm also pleased to take credit for the beautiful weather outside. Over the years, we have discovered that whenever there's a Faith in Life event, there's beautiful weather, so uh, you're welcome. Um, I always like to ask the question out of curiosity, how many people have never been to a Faith in Life event before tonight? Wonderful, good. Special welcome to all of you. We're really glad you're here. For those of you who have been to other events, you'll know that over the last 12 years, we have hosted all kinds of speakers from all kinds of backgrounds, each of whom comes to talk about how the Christian faith connects with a different dimension of everyday life. Uh, Tonight, if you've been reading in your program, you'll know that our speaker uh, worked in the Torrance Police Department, that's Torrance, California, for 26 years in a variety of capacities, uh, including as a cold case detective. He became a Christian when he was 35, and has used um, his, uh, the lessons he learned as a cold case detective to apply them to the Gospels, which we'll hear about tonight. I always like to lift up, though, a couple of things that aren't in the official biography. So one thing I will mention is that my wife, Amy, and I actually lived in Torrance, California for two years in the mid-'90s, and I am happy to report that tonight's speaker never pulled me over. <laughs> And the other thing, and I don't want to turn the the audience against him right out of the gate, but the other thing I will mention is that he has had the privilege of uh, serving as a guest chaplain for a team in Wisconsin that wears green. Um, (laughs) But don't hold that against him. See, I knew we would would have some people, yeah. Um, He is the author of, among other things, a book called Cold Case Christianity, which is available for sale in the Narthex following this event. Um, and we are delighted he is here. Will you help me welcome Jim Wallace?
1: Yeah, I actually went to the Packers one time and spoke at a chapel, for him to mention that is just not fair. Anyway, uh, don't hold that against me. We're going to talk tonight a little bit about a way of looking at your, your, your faith, a way of looking at the Christian worldview that maybe you hadn't considered before. And it was something that I really was hesitant as a non-believer. I wasn't raised by any Christians. I have no one in my family who um, were Christians. Um, For the most part, I I came to this late. I was 35. I was somebody who uh, really had some strong skepticism. As a matter of fact, most people who knew me would say that I was a pretty obstinate uh, atheist. And I thought I was a really pretty well-informed atheist. And I was more than willing to argue with my friends who were Christians. Because for the most part, they were really lame. They were really lame at defending their worldview. I mean, they just were terrible. And they were cops. And I used to think, boy, for people who are so involved and committed to evidence in their professional lives, to not be able to hold your metaphysical views of the world based on any evidence, to be able to make a case for what you believe about God, that just made no sense to me. So I want to walk you through the process that I went through when I first became interested in examining the Gospels because I was a little bit older and I had an opportunity to work in, these, uh, in this industry for a while. And I learned some things that I transferred to my investigation of Christianity. So I want to first of all introduce you to who I am and what my background was before I became a Christian. Uh, I was raised in Southern California. My dad was a police officer before me. As a matter of fact, I was born in his academy um, I was uh, back in the 60s. He did this job for almost 30 years before I did it. And I tried my best not to get involved in law enforcement. I have a bachelor's degree in design and a master's degree in architecture from UCLA. I call it architorture. That's what it felt like. And uh, I didn't come to law enforcement until I was 27. But it does run in families, and sure enough, I found myself doing the same thing that my dad did for all those years. As a matter of fact, my son, Jimmy, was born in my academy the same way that I was born in my dad's. Um, So you do a lot of different things when you work in law enforcement. You don't start off working cold cases I ended up working cold cases. and I did that for the last about 15 years of my career But I started off doing other things. You start off working in a patrol assignment. You're gonna handle patrol calls I did that for a number of years. I also worked in our gang detail for two years And I worked in a number of specialty details like we have a SWAT team So I had a chance to work uh, those specialty details for a number of years and those are a lot of fun You learn a lot Uh, Then, as soon as I got done with that job, I was actually involved in uh, our back room. We call it our back room. It's actually an undercover position. And uh, my job was to... we were working career criminals, but I also got to work a lot of major dope cases, and I didn't have to cut my hair for four years. So it was really great, and I didn't cut it. um, And I just had a really good time. And I had a neighbor who didn't even introduce himself to me until I cut my hair, and I got reassigned to robbery-homicide. And during all that time, I was not a believer. I was, uh, like I said, a pretty adamant, outspoken atheist, and people who knew me uh, really would not discuss religious things with me. As a matter of fact, a lot of the people we had took to jail would tell us that they were Christians, and I used to play that pretty well, and so I used to make a lot of fun of those people I knew who were Christians. Uh, But at some point, I decided to look at the Gospels as eyewitness accounts. And a lot of this background came because I was working these crazy cold cases. Cold cases are just murders because there's no statute of limitations on murder. And these cases are highly publicized. I've been on Dateline more than any other detective because I'm working weird cases. And it's been a, a great run. We've had, we've had great success. We've never lost a case. We just got our last prosecution uh, in August of last year. It was on Dateline in October. And so, you know, you learn, you learn a certain skill set. And I think that skill set that we learn is absolutely applicable to us looking at Christianity. So I'm going to try tonight to share with you uh, really 54 years of experience in law enforcement because my dad was doing this job. My son now does the same job that I did for years using the same tools that I used before him. And I used those very same tools before him that my dad used. We've been using the same tool set. And we're like the George Foreman of law enforcement. We have, you know, George Foreman's got six boys. You know that, right? And all of his boys are named. George Foreman, in case you didn't know that, that's true. And so we have the same name for the last 54 years. If you called our agency and you asked for Jim Wallace, there's been somebody there to answer the phone. And my son will continue that tradition now for the next 30 years himself. So we're going to take that experience and I hope to kind of teach you a few simple principles that, that you can use to examine the Christian worldview in a very kind of reasonable, evidential way. Okay? But in order to do that, uh, I need to teach you a few things. I want to show you before I start a place you can go after we're done here that will help you to make the case for what you believe. It's just a simple website I have. that's called coldcasechristianity.com. And I write here uh, or post something every single day. And, uh, for example, I'm going at the hotel today for the blog post tomorrow. And I'll help you to take a look at your, your views as a Christian, evidentially, if you'll visit the site. I even have a phone app you can download. And everything that's on the site is available on the phone app, including the, the, the video of this uh, presentation tonight. So you could actually watch this from your phone. Make sense? And if you want to complain and use Twitter, you can use those handles to, to locate us. Okay? Even tonight, if you want to make a comment, you can get on right away and do that. All right, that being said, let's talk about a couple of skill sets that cold case detectives have to master that I think will help you to stay the Christian worldview. The first thing I want you to see is this, this, this parallel between cold cases and Christianity. Think about what my cold cases are. These are events in the distant past. My cases run from 1979 to 1988. I'm actually working a case right now that's in the 90s. It's the youngest case I've ever worked. So you're you're always working things that are in the distant past. And I don't have cases that have the benefit of eyewitnesses who actually saw what happened. If I had an eyewitness who could tell me what happened, it wouldn't have gone cold. It would have been solved in the beginning. So I don't have those kinds of cases, and I also don't have the luxury of cases that have good forensic evidence, like DNA or fingerprints. I was hoping for those kinds of cases when I first started this detail. I actually went through 30 of our open cases looking for a case I could just get a quick DNA hit on. Because I wanted to show my sergeant it was worth doing this project, right? I couldn't find any. We just don't have those kinds of cases. Other people do. I just don't have any. So I've got to build them a different way, by making these cases, but with cumulative circumstantial evidence. And I'll bet when I say that word circumstantial, it kind of has a bad connotation. Most people don't think of it in the positive. They think of that as this crummy evidence. It's just a circumstantial case. Well, I want to help you think that through that a little bit better tonight, okay? This is the nature of all cold cases, but if you think about it, it's also the nature of the Christian worldview. It's an event in the distant past, no living eyewitnesses, no forensic evidence. We get to build the case a different way. It turns out all the skill sets you would use to build a cold case, you can use to make the case for Christianity, or to falsify the case for Christianity, either way. So we're going to do that tonight, and I'm going to teach you just a few skills, because we've only got like about 45 minutes together, so we're going to do this really fast, Okay? first skill set you're going to need is to be able to distinguish what is circumstantial evidence. There's only two kinds of evidence. Only two kinds. Direct evidence and indirect evidence. Indirect evidence is also called circumstantial evidence. Direct evidence is limited to one kind of evidence, folks. Eyewitness testimony. Everything else is in the second category. Indirect evidence. So let's do a case together. Why don't you imagine we've got this young man, he actually has feet, you just can't tell on the screen here because it's so dark, but he has to have a pair of boots on. He's been accused of killing his girlfriend with that baseball bat. He's bludgeoned her to death. Now we're going to make this case one of two ways. Well first we'll make the case uh, with, with, with direct evidence. Direct evidence is eyewitnesses. So we need an eyewitness to make the case that way. Well we can say, well he's an eyewitness, he was there, he saw it. So one way to make the case would just be to interview him. If he cops out to it, we're done. But do you think if I was to go and ask him what happened, I should believe anything he tells me? Probably not. Especially if he's been lying for the last 30 years. He's become pretty good at it. So I'm not going to be able to get at it this way. I've got to go at it at a different angle. What if I had an actual witness other than him who could say I saw the whole thing? Now that would be a direct case. So how compelling is that witness? Let's say she said, well, you know, I was out cl- clipping my roses and I heard this commotion across the street. And my neighbor, she's always fighting with her boyfriend and so she's fighting again on that particular day. And I looked up and I saw that the fight was getting serious. I could see through the plate glass window of her house, the big living room window. And before I know it, they're screaming at each other. And then before I know it, he's smacking her. And she goes down to the ground he gets a baseball bat. He starts swinging it on her and then he runs out to his car and he drives off. Well, how do you know who this guy is? Well, I've known that guy for years, too. I mean, I've known both these kids. They grew up in our neighborhood. We do everything together. We do block parties, Fourth of July. We're always together. I've known that kid since he was this tall. As a matter of fact, he was wearing the shirt that I gave him for Christmas two years ago. Now, that would be pretty compelling. And if she held up under cross-examination, you could make this entire case with one piece of evidence. That evidence would be the eyewitness statement of this neighbor. That would be pretty compelling. And pretty quick, that kind of case would be called a direct case, because she would be testifying. But what if we have a slight change in this? What if, instead of uh, a man uh, that she can see his face, he's wearing some other t-shirt, and he's got a mask over his face? Let's do that right now. Well, now she can't really tell me who it is because he's got the wrong shirt and she can't see his face. Now she can say that he fits the general's description of the boyfriend, the right height, the right weight, the right width, but she can't tell me for sure if it's the boyfriend. Would you be willing to convict this guy right now on the basis of that witness testimony? No. So it's, now we gotta make it a different way. We can't make it directly. We don't have an eyewitness. So how are we gonna make this case? We're gonna make this case indirectly. So let's do that right now. Let's go talk to him. He tells us that on the night of the murder, he was busy with his friends. He's drinking with his buddies for a couple of hours. Really? What are your friends' names? We go out, we talk to his friends. His friends tell us, no, I haven't seen that guy in two weeks. He's lying about his alibi. And he fits the general description. How many of you are suspicious of this guy right now? Raise your hands. okay to be suspicious. Okay, very good. We should probably continue our investigation, right? So we do a little uh, write a search warrant. Go into his house. We find in his house he's got something very suspicious. He's got a baseball bat. That is suspicious. I'm not, I guess maybe not here in, in Minnesota. You know, I, I actually do this talk all over the country and in Canada. And when I was mean, in the Vancouver area for a week, I did this talk, and finally somebody stopped me and said, "You know, Jim, here on the Vancouver side of Canada, we hate baseball. <laughs> we don't like baseball. We don't watch it." Nobody's got a baseball bat. If you had a baseball bat in your house in the Vancouver area, you would be suspicious because <laughs> nobody has a baseball bat here. That's the Toronto side. I said, really? So when I do this talk in Canada, what do I have to do? He's got a hockey, pu- a hockey stick in his hand. <laughs> so I, do a, I have a hockey version of this also, okay? But this guy's baseball bat is kind of suspicious because in the thick part of the bat, it's all dinged up and nicked up. Not like he's been hitting baseballs with it, but like he's been using it like a club. And when you do a forensic test to see if there's any blood or tissue on the baseball bat, there's nothing because he has soaked this baseball bat in bleach. Now, how many of you bleach your baseball bats? That's pretty unusual, don't you think? Bleach baseball bat, B-O-L-I-B-I fits the general description. How many of you think right now this is our guy? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Get up high so I can see it. Okay. Let's go a little further. Uh, At the search warrant also we discover a pair of jeans. Now everyone's got jeans, but his jeans are unusual. They're really dirty and muddy and they're caked with dirt and mud everywhere, but we use a chemical called luminol. When we spray it on certain clothing, we can see that certain things will luminesce. Usually it's it's, uh, certain fluids, blood, uh, body fluids, Uh, sometimes certain detergents will also luminesce. And his pants, when we spray them with luminol, they're glowing, they're luminescing at the knees. Now we do a test for blood and body fluid. It's not blood or body fluid. Apparently it's it's some kind of detergent. He's used detergent on his knees to clean something, but the pants are filthy. They're still filthy. So whatever he's trying to clean, it's not dirt or mud because that's still on the pants. He's trying to clean something other than dirt or mud off the pants. What do you think he's trying to clean? Spot clean pants, bleached bat, BO alibi fits the general description. See the problem with this guy? No sign of forced entry. Whoever got in this house had a way to get in the house or was let in the house voluntarily by the victim. Now, of course, she would let her boyfriend in, but also there are only three people who have a key to get in this house. The victim, the victim's mother who's been dead for a couple of months, and the crazy boyfriend who you're talking to. And he'll t- he is crazy. He'll tell you they have a really uh, tumultuous relationship. It's up and down. He loses his temper all the time. He can't help himself. When he loses his temper, he does smack her around. He doesn't mean anything by it. He always apologizes afterwards. She always takes him back. This is the nature of their relationship. She understands him, he understands her. And he'll tell you in the recorded interview that on the night of the murder, he did lose his temper because he found out that day that she was cheating on him. Can you imagine why he wouldn't want to cheat on this guy? <laughs> Bring one of those home to your, your mom or dad, girls, and see what happens, okay? So he's, got, you know, he's losing And he does say, yeah, I lost my temper, and I did smack her pretty hard, and even in front of her friends, I threatened to kill her because I found out she was cheating on me, but I didn't kill her. Now, how many of you feel really good that this is our suspect? Raise your hand. Raise it high. I want to see the numbers. How many right now are not sure? Raise your hand. Some of you are not sure for a reason because you realize I have all this black space over here to fill up. (laughs) And you're like going, hey, I'm not going to even offer until I see what's in that space, right? Fair enough. Um, The uh, witness said he he had feet when he ran away. And on his feet, he had a pair of unusual boots. They were leather. They had a leather band on the side of the boot that was unusual. And when you do some research on this, you discover there's only one pair of boots that are anything like that pair of boots. One manufacturer makes that. They're sold by one company in the county. They've only sold 30 pairs in the last two years. They're very unusual and not very popular. Who do you think's got one of the 30 pairs in his house? (laughs) See the problem we have here? We're having a it's a triangulation problem. He's got a one in the 30 relationship, a one in three relationship. What are the odds that one of the one in the thirty is also one of the one in the three? This is the problem he's having. Now, if you'd have gotten to this search warrant just a few minutes late, you'd have discovered he'd have been dead because he was about to commit suicide. He was even writing his suicide note when you were knocking on the door. And when you read the note that's still on the counter, it says that he is incredibly remorseful for losing his temper last night and doing something he wishes he could take back. He can't take it back. He lost his temper, he exploded, he did something horrific, and now he can't live with himself. So he has no choice but to kill himself. And if you'd gotten there a few minutes later, he would have. But he doesn't say in the note that he killed his girlfriend. So now I have all this prior behavior, post-behavior. Now the witness says when he drove away, he drove away in an unusual car. She had not seen one of these in a long time. What was it? Well, she knew because, you know, her, her friends in college had a car like this. But what is it? It's like a mustard yellow colored 1972 Volkswagen Carmen Ghia. Do you guys even know what a Carmen Ghia is? Okay, raise your hand if you don't know what a Carmen Ghia is. These are all the people who still have life left in them, okay? <laughs> because they're not old and know that you know. And in California, a Carmen Ghia could probably last about forever because it's dry and it's 80 today. It's 80 and dry in California. Pretty nice here right now, but it's probably wetter here. It wouldn't last here. As a matter of fact, even in California, they're rare. You do a DMV search. There's only two operational 1972 Volkswagen Carmen Gias anywhere in the county and you don't know what color they are because DMV record doesn't tell you what color they are. But when you do the search warrant at his house and you pull up in the garage door, what do you think he's got? By the way, that's what a carmanguilla is, for those who don't know, okay? Now, do you see the problem here? Do you see how we're building this? I think if you were to ask this question, is it still possible that he's innocent? Absolutely. But we don't have a standard of proof called beyond a possible doubt. We have a standard of proof called beyond a reasonable doubt. And it's not reasonable, <laughs> It might be possible, but it's not reasonable. Now, a defense attorney is going to say, I can explain this some other way. And I can explain this some other way. I just got done with a case with Robert Shapiro in L.A. Courts in the same courtroom where they did O.J. on the ninth floor of the criminal courts building. And this—you know, they'll try to explain this eight other ways. It's eight... Co- and by the way, if I'm in a criminal trial, I'm not going to use eight pieces. I'm going to have 80 pieces. I call it death by a thousand paper cuts. <laughs> right? Because all these things add up that all point to the same conclusion. Now, I might find some way to explain this. The stars just happen to align, so these eight coincidences just seem to make him look guilty. That's certainly possible, but is that really reasonable? It turns out he is the one common causal factor that unifies all the divergent evidence. And when you see that happen, that's how we build cumulative cases. And it's very powerful in criminal trials. I do it all the time. I'd say probably 70% of cases done in America have no direct evidence. They're done indirectly, just like this. In fact, um, this is the nature of all circumstantial cases. We try to surround the suspect with as many pieces as possible, 80, 100, whatever it may be, pieces of evidence to all point to the same conclusion. And then you're stuck with this inference being the most reasonable. And juries are told by judges that they are not to look at circumstantial evidence as any less credible, less valuable, less viable in your jury deliberations. They're to be given the exact same weight. So next time you hear someone say it's just a circumstantial case, I want you to put your hand up and slap them in the head, okay? Because there's no such thing as just, there are circumstantial cases and there are direct cases. I'll tell you, I would often rather have a indirect case than a direct case, you know why? Witnesses lie. They often do. They have some reason they want to be on dateline, or they, they want to protect their uncle who's been accused of a murder. They're motivated to lie. But indirect evidence is not trying to fool me. I might be incorrect about how I've evaluated it, but it's not intentionally trying to deceive me. See the difference? Now, we're about to turn a corner and talk about direct evidence, and that's the biggest problem I have with Christianity, right? Because direct evidence, that's, those are the claims of alleged eyewitnesses. Well, what are the Gospels? They're the claims of alleged eyewitnesses. And that's the problem we have. Why should we trust them? I'm here to tell you, I don't trust any witness, even when they tell me something good. I get to the point where I just don't trust anybody. You get lied to enough times, right? So I don't trust witnesses, I test witnesses. And there's a process that I use to test witnesses. As a matter of fact, jurors are given instructions by judges to test their witnesses in trials in four major categories. Now make it easy for you, I'll give them to you in single words. If a witness was actually there, and you can demonstrate he was actually there, and you can verify what he says in some way, corroborate it in some way, and he's been honest and accurate over time and hasn't changed his story, and lastly, he's not biased or motivated to lie to you, you can assume and actually infer reasonably that he is reliable as a witness. So when I first looked at the Gospels, I wasn't really interested in Jesus as God. I just walked into a big church and this pastor threw Jesus in a way I could catch him. Here's how he pitched him. This Jesus guy is smart. Regardless of what you think of him, you could learn something from him. Okay. I'd read a lot of ancient sages by that time. And I was willing to add Jesus to my list of ancient wisdom. And that was it. So I went out and I bought a Bible and I read through looking for the red letters. I was kind of hoping to be more like Proverbs. But it's not. They're couched in the Gospels. And the Gospels appear to be claims that somebody is making... They want me to believe it's true. Like it actually happened. And I had a problem with that. So I decided to test it. With the same criteria I would use to test any witness. Tonight we're going to talk about three of these four areas. As quickly as we can. And you'll see how, what my conclusions were. The first area we're talking about is are they really present early enough to have been eyewitnesses. This is a case from 1972, Thanksgiving Day 1972. A 10-year-old girl was kidnapped from our town. She was killed, and she was uh, dumped about two counties north of us. This is the man that was eventually arrested. This is my dad, walking him across to the courtroom. These are the two uh, detectives who were really convinced originally found this guy and interviewed him. They got the big sideburn back there behind him a little bit. This is 1974. My dad hates this picture, by the way, because he thinks he looks like a 1974 greasy polyester suit. No one wears a mustache anymore. If you wear a mustache, you're pretty much an old man. I mean, let's face it, if you've got a mustache, raise your hand. <laughs> Do you want to say any more? Okay. You had to have a mustache in these days. You couldn't get employed. You couldn't even get hired without a mustache, I think. So everybody had them. But my dad hates this. I love showing this picture because my dad's a really committed atheist. Even now, he never listens to any of my talks. Has never seen any one of them. Never read my book. So I can make fun of him. He doesn't even know. So it's great. <laughs> he also doesn't like the fact that he looks like his butt's sticking out here. But it's not really his behind. It's actually his, his gun is sticking out right there. Anyway, this guy's being walked across the street. He confessed to the entire murder. It's about a thousand pages of transcripts. I've read through them all. They're horrific. Everything he did to this girl, and then finally how he killed her and got rid of her body. It's not a pretty read. It's hard to read. None of it is true. He wasn't even there. He's got some issues, but he's not a killer. We got him out of our case in the very eve of the trial through blood evidence. If you're not there, you can't be the killer. (laughs) You also, though, can't be a witness if you weren't there. And that's what I always suspected about the Gospels. Let me walk you through this timeline. Here's the ministry of Jesus. We'll put it somewhere between 30 and 33 AD. That's the event under description, okay? Here's the courtroom we're going to get to eventually. It's the first church council where people came together and said, hey, which of these eyewitness accounts should we trust? Which should be in the canon and which should not be in the canon? This is not the council of Nicaea. This is the council of Laodicea. And it's 330 years after the events. That's a long time. If the Gospels were written late in history, say down here, you should not trust them as eyewitness accounts. They can't be eyewitness accounts. The witnesses would have been dead for 300 years. And there are lots of folks who are writing books about this topic, including Bart Ehrman, who I think is one of the finest biblical scholars in the North American continent. He grew up in the church went to uh, Moody Bible Institute for his bachelors, to Wheaton for his masters, to Princeton for his PhD, and studied under one of the finest biblical scholars of the 20th century, Bruce Metzger. But Bart's not a Christian. And he's written a lot of books against Christianity and why you should not trust any of the Gospels. And if folks like Bart, he's teaching he at the Bible Department at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He writes a lot of popular-level books that are easy to read, fun but not the very critical of Christianity. You can't trust that you have the one Christian, you have a version of Christianity, but it's not the version that's necessarily true. We've lost so many other versions. Not only that, you will say that we lost a lot of scripture, and what we do have has been modified so much and misquoted so much you can't trust what it says. Not only that, it's been written by people who aren't even the, the alleged names on those Gospels aren't even the authors, they're all forgeries. His latest book is called How Jesus Became God. We'll get to that in a minute. But he doesn't believe that Jesus we have in the Gospels today is the real Jesus, the historical Jesus is the man. That Christ is the mythology that evolved from the man Jesus. If he's right, though, and people like him are right, and these are late dated gospels, you also should be suspicious of them because they could never qualify as eyewitness accounts. If they're not written early, they're not eyewitness. They can be something. They can contain some measure of truth, but they can't be eyewitness accounts. Because they'd be dead for too many years. On the other hand, the closer we move this to this area over here, they could at least pass the first test. It doesn't mean they're truthful. They could be early lies. But at least they're written early enough to have actually been written by eyewitnesses. That's the first test I have to pass. I actually do think they're over here. I'm going to show you with a circumstantial case now why I think they're here. How many of you Sunday school graduates know the book that was written by Luke describing the history around Jerusalem in the first century after Jesus ascended into heaven? That is called the book of Acts. Good. In the book of Acts, does Luke ever mention the destruction of the temple which occurred in 70 AD? I'll put it on the timeline for you. No. Why wouldn't Luke put that in there? You know, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus allegedly predicts the destruction of the temple. If I'm writing a mythology about Jesus called the book of Acts or his followers, I would want to put in there the successful completion of Jesus' prediction. It makes Jesus look like an accurate predictor. But it's missing. Not only that, the siege of Jerusalem, a horrific two- or three-year period of time in which the Roman army came in and blockaded the city and starved out the city. Anyone who tried to escape from Jerusalem was crucified on the roads out. When the Romans finally got inside, Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that people were starving so desperately inside the walls of Jerusalem that women were seen eating their children. That's what Jesus, to leave out this siege and to leave out this temple destruction It'd be like the equivalent of writing a story about New York City, a history, but leaving out the Twin Tower attack. You would not do that. Yet both of these are missing from the book of Acts. Not only that, Paul's still alive at the end of the book of Acts, right? He's in custody in Rome. Well, we know when he's killed, why is he still alive at the end of the book of Acts? Why don't you just report his death? Why don't you report the death of Peter? It happens about the same time. Why don't you report the death of James, the brother of Jesus? That happens around 61. Luke has no problem reporting deaths. He reports the death of Stephen, a minor player. Sorry, Stephen, you're a minor player. And then he reports the death of James, the brother of John. That happened in 44. He's also a minor player. Luke has no problem mentioning those, but he leaves out the three most important people in the book of Acts. Don't forget, James, the brother of Jesus, was leading the first church council in Acts 15. Why would you leave that stuff out? Why would you leave out all this stuff? Why is this stuff missing from the book of Acts? Well, one good explanation would be if it hasn't happened yet. If it hasn't happened yet, you can't write about it. And that's what appears to be the case in the book of Acts. Everything stops before any of this stuff happens. So I'll just tentatively place the dating of the book of Acts one year prior to the first missing event, and we'll test it. Remember that Luke wrote two books. This is not a trick question. The other book that Luke wrote is called what? Luke. Gospel of Luke. Which one did he write first? There used to be one large manuscript. He wrote the Gospel of Luke first. That means that Luke's dating has to be something earlier than Acts. As a matter of fact, Luke tells us this in the first chapter of the book of Acts. When he writes to Theophilus, he says, In my former book, Gospel of Luke, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach, verse 2, until he was taken up to heaven. That's the Gospel of Luke now you see I had to push Luke's gospel over I pushed it to 53 why so early? here's why Luke twice writes to two different groups once he writes to Timothy and he tells Timothy in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 5 which he wrote around 63 to 64 AD pastoral letter he says Timothy take care of the people who lead your church they deserve your honor and they deserve to be paid and he says to Timothy something really cool check it out For the scripture says, oh, cool. We're now going to see what Paul thinks of as scripture as early as 63 AD. And unfortunately for us, he does mention this verse. Do not muzzle the ox while it's tray. That's just another Old Testament verse. It's out of Deuteronomy. He's constantly quoting the Old Testament, right? Who cares? But here's another verse. And the worker deserves his wages. That's not an Old Testament verse. He's giving you one verse out of the Old Testament to support it and one verse out of the New Testament to support it. That is from the Gospel of Luke. He is quoting Luke's Gospel to Timothy as early as 63. Interesting. I said 53. Well, here's why. There's a church in Corinth that's completely messed up. They are so ridiculous. They're sleeping with their family members. They're getting drunk before the Lord's supper. Paul had been there in 51. Right around 53, he writes a letter called 1 Corinthians where he tells the church, hey, knock it off. I taught you better than that. Remember the Lord's Supper? You don't do it that way. You do it this way. And he reminds them of what he had taught taught them prior. And he says something interesting. Jesus said, this is my body, which is given up. for Do this in remembrance of me. The cup, do it in remembrance of me. You can read all the Gospels. There's only one Gospel in which a Gospel author says Jesus said, do it in remembrance of me. That's not Matthew, and that's not John, and it's not, you know, it's not, uh, um, it's not uh, Luke. I'm sorry, it's not Mark. It is Luke. He's quoting a big piece of scripture from Luke's gospel again to this church. He's quoting Luke 22. Look how much he's quoting. And he's telling this church in 53, go back to the way I taught you earlier. Well, how much earlier did he teach this? I don't know. I'll just leave it at 53 for now. I think it could be earlier. Now, it's interesting. I want you to every word matters to detectives. Every single thing you say, I'm going to hold it against you. Everything you don't say, I'm also going to hold that against you. Just so you know. Here's the first verse of uh, Luke's gospel. There's an interesting word here that I don't think should be here. It's an extra word. Check it out. Luke says, I'm not an eyewitness. I'm just... Theophilus, I'm just a guy who investigated this and talked to the eyewitnesses. And he says, therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Really? You're going to write a history for me? And you have to tell me that it's in the right order? Uh, Like, duh. If it's a history, I assume it's in the right order. Why would you have to say that this account is orderly? Every adjective matters. That's a Greek word that means in the correct chronological order. Well, don't you assume that? Well, of course, if there's common knowledge about another account out there in the first century that's not orderly, then you might find yourself saying this. And it turns out there is common knowledge in the first century of another account called the Gospel of Mark that the Bishop Papias says was written under the teaching of Peter in Rome as... Peter's teaching in themes. Mark is copiously or taking notes and forming in the gospel that according to Papias is accurate, if not orderly. First century. And the word he uses for orderly is the exact same word that Luke uses. So I, it makes perfect sense to me. He's now telling Theophilus, I've got all this stuff from everybody in here, only I've got it in the right order. And who do you think he quotes word for word more than anyone else in his gospel? He quotes Mark the disorderly account. But I've got it in the right order now. But that means that Mark's account has to come first. Now, do you see what we've done? Forget about that one. If all we have is this one, we're too close to the events. We're writing the events close enough to have actually been written by eyewitnesses. And even more importantly, we're writing them close enough that the people who saw Jesus and knew Jesus could say, time out. I knew Jesus and he was none of that. It's harder to write this early and get away with a lie. If you're going to tell us a lie, you need to either write it late or let, write it out of the region. The problem we have is that it's early in the region. Now this next section, verification, I'm just not going to be able to get into it. This is an hour talk if I started right here, but I'm going to send it to you. And I'll show you at the end of this talk how you can get it. I'll send it to you for free. I'm going to send you this entire talk in its entirety. This is about an hour and a half long. I'm going to send you all the PDF files. I'm going to send you Bible inserts. One of those Bible inserts is going to have that early dating timeline on it. So you can just take it, print it, and stick it in your Bible. Let's go to the third section. The third section is really about whether or not something's changed over time. Is it honest and accurate over time? This is a guy who I took to jail several years ago. He killed his wife in 1980. He then got rid of her body and told her family that she ran off. And they believed it, we believed it, for the first six years. It happened in '81. We didn't arrest him, we didn't even investigate this as a homicide until 87. By the time we started working it as a homicide, there was no crime scene. Not a single piece of physical evidence. He had moved. No body. Lots of unanswered questions. How did he kill her? When did he kill her? What did he do with her car? How did he get rid of her body? I couldn't answer any of those questions for the jury, but the jury convicted him in four hours. And by the way, at the sentencing hearing, he confessed to all of us and gave us the location of the body. So we know he's guilty. But why did, we go, why did he get caught? Because over time, he kept on changing his story. He couldn't remember his first story. So when we asked him again in '87, he had slight changes. In '96, he had more slight changes. In 2010 he had even more. We can think we can picked it up in 13, 2013. So you can see this is the problem. If you change your story over time, you should not be trusted. And that was my suspicion about the Gospels, is that we might have an early account written early in history. But how many times does it get changed before it gets to the council? This is how Jesus became God. Because the first version of Jesus, the simple Jesus, the simple Jewish preacher guy, he got added on and added on and modified and modified until finally he's the Jesus who rose from the dead. That's the problem. So even if it's early, it doesn't mean you can trust it. Same thing happens in crime scenes. You get the courtroom 30 years later. Let's put a piece of evidence at the crime scene. I'm going to put this casing here. 30 years later, I'm going to bring that casing into the court. And I'm going to make a claim that there's an uh, extractor pin mark on that casing which identifies it to the suspect's handgun. That's going to make the entire case. The problem, of course, is how do you know that that extractor pin mark on the casing was there in the beginning? How do you know some detective didn't pull it out of property 10 years later, put the little etch on it, put it back in property, no one's the wiser, the people who follow him, they don't know that it's been altered, They work it like it's legitimate evidence. And by the time I get it, years later, it's really been modified. I have no idea. I take it, and I've got a piece of evidence in my scene, in my courtroom, that's been dramatically changed from the crime. Couldn't the same thing happen in the Gospels? Think about it. Oh, you have this piece of evidence, the Gospel of, let's say, John. And then you're going to bring a Gospel of John in 330 years later. How many times along the way? It could have been once, a thousand, a hundred thousand times. How do we know how many times it's changed and how many places over and over and over again? So the Christians who follow, they don't know that it's been changed. They have no idea it's been altered that many times. We think it's legit. We honor it. It's now in our canon. And we have no idea that we've got an altered Gospel in the canon. See the problem? I'll show you how we deal with it in crime scenes and then we'll see if we can deal with it in the canon. In crime scenes, we typically say, hey, is there anybody there at the crime scene on the first day when they got called out to the crime scene, like a first reporting officer who gets there and he stands next to that crime scene and he takes a picture maybe with his Polaroid camera or he writes a really good report. Do you guys even know what a Polaroid is? <laughs> Do you know what a Polaroid is? Do you know what a pol- Yeah, I'm talking to you. Do you know, what? you don't even know what it is, do you? I don't know, that's good for you. You're the next, the hope, the greatest hope the church has, has no idea what a Polaroid is. So I brought one to show you. I brought a new Polaroid, okay? Not that we ever use these anymore, because we don't. We have this thing called a phone. That's what we use now. This is what a po- new Polaroid cameras look like. Do you believe that? I'll show you what they do. I'm going put this here. I'll use you as my guinea pig, okay? So here's what a Polaroid camera does. Gotta turn it on. Give me a second here, it's gotta go to green. The battery's gotta charge. Is it green yet? There it is. You ready? You have to actually look in this window. Do you believe that? There's no, that's crazy. Here we go. Wait, 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 wait. Here it comes. Believe it or not, it's going to develop just be patient. And it's this side, not this side. Got it? Now, I'm gonna test you guys' uh, acuity in terms of Polaroids. That's a pretty easy Polaroid. They're smaller than they used to be, huh? How many of you guys remember this Polaroid? (laughs) Like you just saw. Not bad. Okay. How many of you guys remember this Polaroid? (laughs) (laughs) Raise your hand if you want this one. Raise your hand. You're a little bit older. A little bit older. How do you guys remember this one? Remember that one? Raise your hand. You had to pull it out. Okay. How about this one? Yeah, you used to, have to tear it apart. Raise your hand if you know that one. You're all in your 50s now, 50s and 60s. How many of you guys know this one? We used to actually put the solution on the polar. Raise your hand if you know that one. Pray for these folks as they're real near death. They're all gonna, they could all stroke out before we even finish this talk. So we'll be praying for you guys. Yeah, Polaroids. And if there's an officer who was there in the, back in the uh, 1980 who took a Polaroid of this or just wrote a really good report, he probably gave it to somebody. The next officer, the detective he gave it to, also writes a report, books it into property, takes it out of property, brings it to the crime lab. The crime lab writes a report and takes the first you know, high-quality 35mm or digital now film of this thing, right? And they do all their tests and they give it to another detective like me who writes to report or takes a picture and brings it in trial. Now I've got report after report after report after report, picture after picture after picture, I can tell. Is it changing over time? What's the first picture look like compared to the last picture? This is called the chain of custody. And this is, every, this is big in every single criminal trial you're ever going to work. This has got to be in place and you have to be able to account for every step, in every link, or the defense attorney is going to have, have a fun time with you. Okay? Is there a New Testament chain of custody, though, you think? It turns out there is. I'll show it to you. Let's start with our crime scene, and we'll go to our courtroom. First officer at the crime scene, in this case, we'll say it's a guy named John. He takes a Polaroid, or writes a really good report about the crime scene. It's called the Gospel of John. But how do we know what's in it? Well, it turns out he gave this to three other people. He had three personal students of John who sat at his teaching and listened to what John taught. They were named... Ignatius, Polycarp, and Papias. Now, lucky for us, after John died, these three became leaders in the church. And they wrote the letters of their own to local congregations. And we still have these letters. They're not in your Bible, but we still have these ancient letters. So we can see, for example, in the seven letters from Ignatius, what it is he learned from John. Because he's going to quote or allude to the Gospels in several letters from Paul. Now we've lost the work of Papius. we don't have that, but we do have one surviving letter to the Philippian church from Polycarp. So we can see, what is the nature of Jesus? Maybe he's just a simple preacher. Maybe none of the stories you see in the Gospels are ever mentioned by these guys. Maybe they never mention the virgin birth or any of the miracles or walking on water. He's a simpler form of Jesus. Now he actually had a student also, Polycarp and Ignatius did, named Irenaeus. Irenaeus became a very uh, staunch supporter and defender of the church and wrote a bunch of stuff we still have including a list of 24 New Testament books that he was using with his student so we can see what Jesus looks like at this point and his student was named Hippolytus Hippolytus pretty much affirms everything that Irenaeus said and unfortunately he got in some trouble with Roman leadership and he was thrown in the mines in Italy and he died in custody I have no student of Hippolytus But there are other chains of custody we could follow. One, for example, from Paul, through the two people he mentions in his letters, Linus and Clement, they became bishops in the Roman church. And as a matter of fact, Clement wrote a very beautiful orthodox letter that was used by the early church called First Clement. We don't have it because the the, the Gospels are limited, the canon is limited to the eyewitnesses. And Clement's not an eyewitness. So his work doesn't get in. But it's a very beautiful letter all the way through the Roman bishopric down to Tatian, but I have no student of Tatian I can find. But Peter, lucky for us, taught Mark. Mark hand-selected the first five bishops in North Africa who started a church in Alexandria led by Pontianus, who wrote, and all these people wrote, heel to toe to Eusebius. So we can get all the way to the council. What we have here are picture after picture after picture, report after report after report about Jesus through time in three separate areas of the kingdom. We have them here in Rome, here in Ephesus, here in North Africa. And we can see Jesus being recorded in three different locations in the world and we can see if they match. And what do we know about Jesus? If you lost all of the scripture, the gospels, but you did have the students of the apostles, what would you know about Jesus? Well, it turns out you'd know everything we know about Jesus. you know that he was born of a virgin. you know that he was a miracle worker who claimed to be God. That he worked miracles, that he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, he seated at the right hand of the Father. Everything you know about Jesus is mentioned by the first officers in the chain of custody, and it never changes. That story is early and repeated often without alteration. You're gonna be stuck looking for a simpler Jesus Jesus who transforms over time. That's just not the story. Last thing we're gonna to do tonight is we're gonna talk about this last piece of bias. Bias is hard. Sometimes, if you had an argument with your wife and if somebody was to actually ask you about you know, what happened, you get two completely different versions of the story. And there's lots of times when we go out to calls where we give two different versions of the story. We're not sure who to believe. Why? Because people are sometimes motivated by to do the wrong thing for one of three reasons. I'll tell you, there are only three motives for any murder. And they're the same three motives to any lie, they're the same three motives to any theft. They're the same three motives for any sin you might ever, ever commit. There are only three motives. Now, I've learned this work working these cases, but I can tell you they're also in Scripture. But I just didn't know it at the time. But when you walk into a crime scene, a death scene, and it's a murder, you don't want to shake your head and go, "Man, there's a thousand reasons why somebody could have." No, there aren't. There are only three reasons why anyone would do that. You find me somebody in one of those three categories, and we're good to go. Makes sense? What do you think those three categories? You can't answer this question if you've read the book. Okay, so what do you think those three motives are? Greed. Yeah, it's very true. The first one is financial greed. It's big. What's the second one? What? Why would you want to be vengeful? What's causing you to want revenge? Go one level deeper. What? What's causing you to be angry? Angry. What's causing you to be jealous? I'll just give you this one, okay? Since you're obviously you're too, you guys, people are so sweet and too good to actually even know this motive. It's sexual or relational lust. That's not that surprising, is it? Sexual lust for guys, relational lust for girls, usually. What's the third one? It's harder. It's the pursuit of power. So sometimes these are nuanced. You know, in a gang murder where someone comes in and says, hey, no one disrespects me in my neighborhood, pop, what is that about? That's about power. So they're nuanced. But These are the only three reasons why anyone ever does any murder or ever lies that makes it easy for us because if we're assessing bias or motive on the part of the disciples we know that if they're lying to us about what's in that bible no problem it's only going to be for one of these three reasons because these are the only three reasons why anyone ever lies so we can ask the question which of these three things is motivating these twelve guys did they get rich off this no no, no one's ever claimed they got rich out of it. Even the most strident atheist is not going to claim that. But what about this? Did they get girlfriends out of this? No. Mm-mm. Didn't get any girlfriends. But I think people would often say, "Well, what? Couldn't we assume there's some form of power? After all, these folks became leaders in a religious community where they had no. You know, who, who were these people before? Now suddenly, John has got. You know, he's being treated like royalty. Really? I have a problem with that. For is it possible? Yes, because anything is possible. It's just not reasonable. Here's why I say that. The foremost leader of the Christian movement in the first century is who? It's Paul. He writes most of the New Testament. Paul has position, authority, and leadership as a Jew who's chasing down the Christians. So you're telling me he's going to jump out of that group and jump in with this group and for the next 20 years get his butt kicked all over the country, all over the world, so that hopefully someday he can once again have the thing he left? He already started with that stuff. Okay, it's possible, I guess, but it seems not very unreasonable to me. Not only that, if you were a leader of Christianity in the first century, it's not like you had a church like this, right? I mean, you weren't Tim, for crying out loud. <laughs> right? If you were a leader in the first century, you have like, a, like this birthmark here. I don't even have... The, oh, dang, I was hoping... Have you guys, before you... Have you guys seen that, that um, far Side cartoon where the one deer is standing next to the other deer... And this deer's got a bullseye on his chest. And the other deer says, bummer of a birthmark, Hal. <laughs> right? That's kind of like what you were in the first century if you were a Christian leader. You had that bullseye tattooed on your forehead. There's a big, di- a big di- difference between uh, fame and infamy. You might want to be famous, but to be infamous is a little bit, that's a whole other thing. And if you look at how these guys um, suffered for their claims... And I'm here to tell you, I'm not not naive enough to think that every one of these early traditions in the church is necessarily 100% accurate. I can have much better confidence about how, say, Peter died than I can, say, how Philip died. But I know one thing for sure. There's not a single contrary account in antiquity in which any of these 12 ever flinched or ever recanted. You know, if you want to end this in the first century, there's two ways you could do it quickly. One, get the body of Jesus and drag it around town. Or two, get any of the 12 to recant. They could never have it. has never happened. You know, my, my family is all atheists. My dad remarried, though. He's got a, a second wife who's LDS, Mormon. In Mormonism, there are three witnesses to the golden plates. Oliver Cowdery, uh, David Whitmer, and Martin Harris. These three people originally testified that they saw those golden plates. Later, they all said, we only saw them with our spiritual eyes. And Martin Harris became a, a member of six other Christian denominations after Mormonism. If you're willing to recant and walk away from your first claim, there's a good chance it's not true. That never happened with these 12. By the way, how much evidential value do you think your testimony, if you said, I'm willing to die for my beliefs in Christianity, it would have zero evidential value. Zero. Because lots of people will die for what they don't know is a lie. But if you were one of the 12 who actually saw this and knew if it was a lie, and you were willing to die for it, that's totally different. That's huge evidential value. So I think folks that might do crazy things in this century, that has no evidential value to me. But folks who would do this at the point of the actual claim, that's different. We're going to end tonight with this, I get this claim all the time, you can't trust the Gospels because they're written by Christians. You know, if if you want me to believe Christianity, you have to give me something that's not written by a Christian. That's just so stupid. You're kind of laughing about it now, but I want you to kind of put your hands around why it's so stupid. So I want to ask you, if you're working robbery homicide and there's no homicide today, what are you working? Robbery. That's why they call it robbery homicide. (laughs) I'll show you a bank robbery. This is a demand note robbery. This guy comes in, he simply puts a gun on the counter. He puts a note on the counter that says he wants the money. He never even opens his mouth. She sees the gun, she sees the note, he puts those things away, she starts giving him money. So he doesn't have to even open his mouth works really effectively the only thing this guy did wrong on this day is when he walked in he picked a bank that had an assistant manager that he went to high school with <laughs> and she was sitting back there watching this whole thing and she thought well I'll say hello to him but it was busy at the time he first walked in and she figured she would wait till he finishes his transaction and then she would say hi but now as she looks up she sees her co-worker has that look on her face like she's being robbed push the button push the button And Kathy is shocked. She's shocked because she knew this guy. I know she's shocked also because it says so right here. But she's shocked (laughs) because she knew this guy in high school. And this guy was the sweetest guy. Great grades, great athlete. If she had to make a list of all the people who would ever commit a robbery, this guy would be at the bottom of her list. That's what kind of guy this was. But now here he is, years later, doing a robbery in her bank. Now, do you think I should go... By the way, his name is not Robert Smith. I just give you that name for, to play with, okay? Do you think I should go talk to Kathy about this guy and say, hey, what? tell me about what happened? Do you think she'd be a good witness? I don't think so, because after all, she is convinced right now that Robert Smith is a bank robber. You might say she's a Robert Smithian. You can't go and talk to Robert Smithians about Robert Smith, can you? Okay, do you see how stupid that is? She didn't start off believing Robert Smith is a bank robber. She ended up there on the basis of her observations. She became convinced on the basis of observation. Those are two completely different things. So I think she'd make an excellent witness, even though she's convinced right now that Robert Smith's a bank robber. She's convinced for a reason. Now I want you to compare her, I think she's an excellent, compare her to um, any of the gospel. How about this? Compare her to the gospel written by Matthew. Do you think Matthew starts off thinking Jesus is God. He's not a disciple of John the Baptist like some of the others, okay? He's a tax collector. He's not even part of that group. And Jesus taps him on the shoulder and says, hey, dude, come with me. We're going to see some things for the next three years. And After three years of watching that nonsense, he's in. He's writing a history of Jesus based on what he saw with his own eyes called the Gospel of Matthew, it's not because he's out of bias. He didn't start off with this bias. He ended up with a conviction on the basis of observation, just like Kathy. If you can trust Kathy, you can trust Matthew. Now, we start off with this guy, right? We say, can we trust him? I don't think so. But now I want to look at how... Do, why do we think we should trust what's been written about Jesus? Well, anytime you're going to evaluate an eyewitness, you're going to build the case the same way we build any circumstantial case, right? This circumstantial case is built on four pillars. The first one, is it early enough? I've given you, I think, good evidential reason to believe this is early. These point to the same conclusion. That's a reasonable inference. We didn't talk about anything in the second pillar at all. Not a single thing. Because there's so much to talk about. So I just knew I couldn't get through all of it. But I think this is actually a very reasonable inference based on archaeology, Jewish, non-Jewish corroboration, locations mentioned, internal evidence. I even did, when I was first looking at this, I knew that Papias had said that mark was writing a gospel based on peter's preaching well if that's the case shouldn't mark's gospel smell like peter i think it should well i was doing a process called forensic statement analysis of my suspects you know we have them come in the day after a murder write down everything you did yesterday from the, day, the moment you got up to the moment you went to bed in ink one side of the paper 24 lines you can't turn it over any corrections you're going to get to cross out I can see every word he's used and I evaluate that, that statement based on his pronoun use based on his verb tenses based on his compression of time expansion of time I look at it forensically to see is he lying to me? and if he is lying to me what time of day is he lying to me about? and I actually compare it to our crime I did the same thing with the gospel of Mark looking for Peter's fingerprints I wrote a whole chapter about it I think there's really good reason to believe that Peter's fingerprints are all over Mark know, a this small thing well, this, this is extra, okay? I'm going to charge you for this. This is extra. Peter does a lot of stupid things in the Gospels. Would you agree? All the time, right? Not in Mark's Gospel. No, in Mark's Gospel, Peter looks the best. If Peter's going to get out of the boat and sink, walking on, trying to walk on water, that's not in Mark's Gospel. He doesn't even get out of the boat in Mark's Gospel. That's in Matthew's Gospel, If if Peter's going to say something stupid in all the other Gospels, in Mark's Gospel, he'll say something stupid, and then Mark will say, and all the other disciples agreed. (laughs) I'm not kidding. You won't see it anywhere else. Check it out for yourself. Anyway, there's there's good fingerprints. So again and again, the more I did this, the more I saw the kind of corroboration I would expect. Third thing, are they accurate over time? I think we've got good reason to believe they haven't been changed. That's a reasonable inference. And finally, are they attested by people who are willing to die for their claims? And what was the bias? What is the thing that would cause them to lie to begin with? When you get to this point, you're building a case. Hundreds of pieces of evidence in these four categories that you put together because I think these things all point to the same thing, which is the reliability of those accounts. The same way we test anyone as an eyewitness. The same way we looked at that suspect in that case. When you build a cumulative case, indirect case, this is how you do it. Does that make sense? I ended up saying, okay, I think we can trust what Jesus says in a way that we can't trust that other suspect. Now look, before I leave you tonight, I just want to say one thing to you. I say it to every group I talk to. I, if I asked you why you're a Christian when you first walked in here, I, I, I told Tim, I, I, the kinds of responses I get are not really good. I'm just to be honest with you. I am not a Christian because it works for me. Because honestly, it doesn't work for me. I was telling Tim, I think... I now have been a Christian with my wife. We were together 18 years before I became a Christian. We've now been together 18 years since I became a Christian. I think if you asked my wife which was the easier 18 years, she'd say the first. I'm not kidding. This is not easy to be. You have to constantly deny yourself and do the thing you feel is the right thing to do. When before, I used to celebrate doing the wrong thing, it never bothered me a bit. I'm also not a Christian because I was raised in the church because I wasn't. I'm not a Christian because I was hoping for heaven or afraid of hell because I'm not. I'm not a Christian because I was trying to fix something that was broken or fill. I didn't have those issues. I bumped into this and I did this. and I'm a Christian today because it's true. I'm stuck with it. But wouldn't you rather be in the truth than in a lie that works better sometimes than this? Now, I was born and raised in California, and if you ask me, are you a Californian, Jim? Yeah. But if you ask me, well, tell me about California. What, what years is, was it founded? I don't know. How many counties are in California? I don't know. How many square miles are in California? What's the population of California? I don't know. How do you pass a bill in California? What's the state legislature like in California? What's the tree of California, the bird of California, the model of California? I don't know any of those things. If you really think about it, I'm a really crummy Californian. But if you ask me, I'll tell you, I am a Californian. I was born and raised there. Is that the way you've been a Christian? I want you to think about that for a second. Yeah, you're Christians, but you don't know anything. So the first time that your son or daughter comes back from their college, that first semester, the second semester, when they're starting to really have the doubts they've had really for the last five years just haven't shared with you, you're not even sure how how to respond to those things. And so we're watching fifty to eighty percent of our young people leave the church in the first four years of college. Only a third, according to Lifeway, will ever come back. And by the way, I don't care what denomination you're in; it's no different. You all have a story. If I asked you, who you thought you have a story—a son, a daughter, a grandson, a granddaughter, a niece, a nephew—somebody in your family who's already left. You know that. You know I'm not making this up. We got to make a choice. What are we going to do about it? We're in 2015, folks. There's no more time for accidental Christianity. You know you're in the right place, but you're here by accident. You don't even know why it's the right place. No, you have to know why it's the right place now. You cannot be a Christian the way I am a Californian. So what I want to do for you is send you something. I have a hidden page at this website, and if you go there now and type in your browser, not in Google, coldcasechristianity.com forward slash resources, you'll see it says, Faith in Life Lecture Series. All you do is hit the button. I'm gonna send you an email with a download link. You can download, I'm only gonna send you one because it's too expensive to do this. I do this all over the country. I'm gonna send you one with just this talk. A complete talk on video with a piece that's missing. All the follow up materials and PDF file. Look, I, I used to hate Christians who were selling stuff and now I'm a Christian with a book. Okay? But you don't need that book. If you want me to sign a copy of the book, fine. But I'm going to send you the PDF files, the MP3s, the videos, and two Bible inserts, one on the chain of custody, and one on the early dating, you can put in your Bible. All you have to do is promise me you'll download it. You'll read it. And you'll share it with somebody who needs to hear it. Now we're going to take questions, but i want to pray before we do. Let's pray. Father, I know that um, you know us better than anybody. You know we were lazy. We're, we always are lazy. And we can always default to doing the simple lazy thing than doing the hard thing. And this is hard work. But we want to be better at what we are. i to better Christ followers and better disciples. And in order to do that, Father, we just want you to encourage us to snap out of our complacency. And if there's someone in this room, Father, right now is a zero-decision Christian, they haven't made a decision for Christ, well, I would just ask you to kind of work with them, to move them, to think about why it is they still stand on the outside looking in. And if there's someone here who has already made a decision to to be saved, a decision to trust Christ for everything, I would ask you, Father, to encourage them to be a two-decision Christian and make a decision to defend what they believe. We love you, Father. Times are urgent. Give us a sense of urgency. And we pray this in the name of your precious son, Jesus. And everyone here says... Amen. Tim. Let's give him a hand, shall we?
0: And no, I'm not going to answer your questions. Um, but we're going to let him rest his voice for just a minute. I want to make a few announcements. Um, I'll plug the next event, first of all. Uh, this is in your program. It's uh, Thursday, April 23rd. That's the last event in this year's season uh, featuring a survivor of the Rwandan genocide, Immaculée Ilabagiza. Um I anticipate that will be a very well-attended event, so I would encourage you to carpool if you can. Uh, and come early if you want a good seat. Um, if you would like us to keep you posted about upcoming events, you can give us your email either by giving us this green sheet or by going to the Faith and Life website. And uh, there's a place to subscribe to our email list. Uh, there's also this thing called Facebook, which we're on, and you can uh, like us there. And we also share information about events. On, on that. Those are really efficient, cost-effective ways for us to communicate, so I would encourage you to sign up for those. Um, and speaking of cost, I always uh, have to say a deep word of thanks to the people who, for 12 years now, have made these events completely free and open to the public. Uh, they're listed in your uh, program there. Uh, I will lift up at least our corporate sponsors, Thrivent Financial, uh, Productivity Inc., Cressa, TCF Bank, uh, Rapid Packaging, Mastercraft, uh, Labels, uh, and then we have some uh, educational sponsors, Luther Seminary, McLaurin, CSF, um, and, oh, I'm, and Sparky Abrasives is not an educational sponsor, but they're actually our oldest sponsor, Sparky is. so, uh, And then there are a bunch of people, <clears throat> individuals listed here. Again, we're able to invite people like Jim uh, at no cost to you Thanks to the generosity of these people, many of whom are here, would you please give them your thanks. The last thing I will say before I invite Jim back up to take some questions is um, the question I often get asked more than any is how did you find uh, this speaker or how do you find speakers? I will point out we are three-fifths of the way scheduling next year's uh, season. Uh, If you have someone you think would be outstanding, please communicate that with me. You can do that on the green sheet. Uh, We're close to filling the series up. But as it happens, uh, I feel slightly embarrassed for tonight's speaker. Um, A gentleman came up to me on a Sunday morning in the fellowship hall and said, there's this great book called Cold Case Christianity, and I think the author of it would be a fabulous uh, speaker for faith and life. And for the life of me, I have no idea who that man was. Here he is. Would you stand up, please? Thank you. So I took you up. Thank you. It was a great suggestion. I appreciate it. All right, Jim, come back up, and uh, we'll take
1: questions for ten
0: minutes or so. Okay?
1: All right. So we're going to have him come to the speaker, to the uh, uh, microphones, right, Tim? They're going to come to those microphones to ask the question. Yes. I'm sorry, yes. So okay. it's always hard to get the froth. Yeah, I got one. Uh,
0: maybe it's a stupid question, but should we be concerned
1: about the destruction of the uh, antiquities in the Mideast that are going on right now? And are there things being destroyed in Christian literature and Christian history as well as the Islamic history? Yeah, I'm always concerned about evidences that are being destroyed, right? So a lot of things you see at a crime scene are not evidence. They're artifacts, Every crime scene has both evidence and artifacts. So some things will help us make a case. Now, I don't want to see anything get destroyed, but I'm, not, I'm more concerned about those things that we would use to build our case. So a lot of the antiquities that are getting destroyed are you know, very, very well-documented pieces of art or documented pieces of sculpture. So, for example, a friend of mine named Dan Wallace. He's not related to me. He's got an organization in Dallas where he actually goes out and he photographs ancient biblical texts. And he's doing them in high definition, and he's put them on his website. It's really amazing work. And what that's doing for us is preserving. So now if those documents get destroyed, we do have a record of what, and of course you might challenge the record, but the reality is we do have a record. So I don't, think anything, I want, to, I don't want to see anything get destroyed, but I, I do think once it's documented, I, I typically, for example, have um, cases where original pieces of evidence were photographed and they are no longer available to us. But we still go to trial with the photographs. So I think you still make your case. So yeah, I, am, I, am, I would be very discouraged, but I'd actually be more discouraged if the things we haven't yet recovered were destroyed. Because the things we've already recovered and documented, they're already in the catalog of evidences. That's just, I mean, that's just my one-sided view as a, as a detective.
0: Uh, now, I've heard that the earliest uh, gospel scrolls uh, date from the second century, I guess, uh, mm-hmm first one is a fragment of the Gospel of John. Uh, um, does that have, what impact does that have on cold case analysis, that although you feel the documents were written fairly close to the time mm-hmm. of Jesus' life, the actual document we, ha- we can have on our hand is uh, several decades later?
1: Oh yeah, I can tell you it's worse than that. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Bart makes a big deal of this in a book called Jesus Interrupted. He tells his life story. He tells the story of his deconversion. And one of the things he says that happens, he got to Moody as a kid raised in the Christian church and he found out at Moody that we don't have the originals. And to me, that was not me. I came to this late and so I knew that right away. I knew that as an atheist, That's one of the things I used to tease my Christian friends about. Because they didn't know. I wonder, even in a, a, a room this big, how many of you knew that? That we don't have the original Gospel of John. In other words, the very first copy called the autograph, the first copy from which we eventually have our Gospel of John. Not only do we not have the first copy, as Bart says very elegantly in his book, we don't have the copy of the original. The first copy of the original we don't have the copy of the first copy of the original or the copy of 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 the first copy of the original. As a matter of fact, we don't have a complete New Testament until Codex Sinaiticus, 325 AD. We have fragments. And worse than that, the fragments we have, when they're compared to one another, the early fragments we have, they vary in hundreds, thousands of places. So when he heard that, as a, a Christian who had never been exposed to this, it shook him. If I just left it there for you and said it the way I just said it, wouldn't that have impact for you? If you heard that for the first time as a young Christian in college, I think it would shake you. It shook him. That's what he says, anyway. So I think this is why I did the chain of custody. No, of course we don't have the originals. The question is, what did the originals say? That's the question. And lucky for us, we have the f- chain of custody. So even though we don't have a complete document until several generations later, we know exactly what was it, well not exactly, we know, and for me, I t- as a detective, I, I'm not looking for, for every detail. I wanna know, is that Jesus a miracle worker? Was that Jesus born of a virgin? Did that Jesus die on a cross? Did he rise from the dead? Did he ascend into heaven? Are all the supernatural elements of the Jesus story present early? Now, maybe he only fed 4,999. didn't really feed 500. Maybe there's an account out there that varies by one guy. I'm not concerned about that. I'm concerned about the majors. The major doctrinal issues that we say define us as Christians. Those have not changed. They're all in there. Now, if you'll let me load, Tim, must be okay to, I've got a short uh, three-slide demonstration why I don't worry about this issue and how I, how I teach it to my students. Would you be willing for me to load it for a second? That means you have to entertain them for like two minutes while I load this thing. Can you do that for me? No. Oh, you can do like, pu- like hand puppets behind the screen. No? All right. Perfect. Whatever. I was going to have you do hand puppets. You oh, you know, do I will, uh, while you're doing
0: that. Um, Dog. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was going to say our guitarist could, could play for a bit, but he's not. Well, and so he's going to walk over there. But I, everyone say thank you to Jeff Elstad. Um He, this, this, is our, um, this is our 59th Faith in Life event. Jeff has been, I think, at 57 of them and uh, has been there from the beginning. And Jeff, we are grateful for your. He calls it sonic, sonic wallpaper,
1: um, and he does it beautifully. Yeah, just more sonic wallpaper for us, Richard. Cool. No, about 30 seconds. Give me a 30 second lick. Can you do that? <laughs>
0: not seeing anyone else hop up to the mic so maybe Jim we could just do this, or oh do we do we have someone hopping up to the mic okay that's fine we'll... we're ready
1: pardon me I'm just a quick one I've got a, a yeah, second question Jim do you can it, answer it. while you're on the run here yeah have you ever used the Chester Beatty Museum in Dublin for some of the research on the original documents? Have I ever been there? Yeah, Charles no. in Dublin. No, I've been to uh, I've been like as far as maybe Texas. And back. No, no, okay. I've been. But they have, they they've been they, everywhere they, here. But they, I've they never do been have seen.
0: fragments of many yes I know that been, religious been, manuscripts and they've, been,
1: and they've been photographed. Yes, 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 and, yes and we have them all photographed. So it's, I've seen those. It's quite a thing
0: to see. So,
1: I want to show you the problem so you guys can see it. Okay, this is this is what Bart Urban saw that bugged him. Okay. We've got documents. This is an ESV version of the Bible. If you compare the ancient manuscripts, the ones we do have, the earliest ones are not complete texts. You might have a fragment of Mark or a fragment of John or a fragment of Luke. And then we get larger uh, pieces as time goes on until finally we have a complete New Testament in one single piece in Codex Sinaiticus, 325 A.D. The problem is when you compare the ancient manuscripts, they vary. So, for example, your Bible is very, very clear about this, and it's very honest about this. So here in the Gospel of John, you'll see a word that has a footnote in the margin that says, you know, in other ancient versions of this, the story is slightly different. It doesn't say I'm not going up to this feast for my time has not yet come. It says I'm not yet going up. That's not a a big deal, but it is a deal. And there are bigger places. I'm just staying on this one page. Let's go in sequence. Here's another one. How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? There's another ancient version that says, knows his letters. These are in your footnotes of your Bible. If you're reading an NASB or an ESV, these are in the footnotes. Or here it will say, uh, on this version, it says, if anyone is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. There's another ancient version that says, his will. Small changes, but some of these are actually much larger. The question I have is, how do you know? Why should we trust the version you have in your Bible? They obviously have arrived at one version of this. Why do we think that that version is trustworthy? Especially when Bart would say, look, on this one page, which is only 25% of the whole page because I've enlarged it, there are that many variations. There's actually four times that many in the real page. So Bart says this, there are more variations among our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. And he's spot on correct. And it doesn't matter. Because there's a way to get back to the originals. Let me illustrate it for you. I have a son named David. One son's a cop. The other son's in med school at USC. We went to UCLA, Jimmy and I. But David's a communist. He went to USC. (laughs) at med school if he needs cash he's going to want I'll "I'll tell you what David I'll I'll meet you next Wednesday 4 o'clock Starbucks on Main Street I'll give you $5,000 to get you to the end of the semester okay great I'll text him but as you can see there's a typo in the text and here it's not starving not Starbucks okay don't you love that's why I have this huge iPhone 6 plus now because the texts are about that big in real life on my hand so I'll text him again better ah weakness instead of Wednesday let me do one more Uh, a couple more problems I called him a nerd for one thing let's just go on one more here we go better oh now I'm naked let's just do one more streak Uh, meek me ah now let me ask you a question where is my son David going to be next Wednesday where's he going to be which Starbucks what time for how much money How can you be so sure? You don't have a single inerrant text. As a matter of fact, you have more variations in those texts than you have words in the text. But you have a lot of texts. And that's what's the defeater. The defeater is not how many variations there are. The defeater is how many copies do we have that we can compare to one another to redact out the variations because the variations are in different places in each copy. So if I got really frustrated and I wanted to make sure I got it right, at some point he's going to say, enough already! And this is the embarrassment of riches we have with Scripture. So many copies that we are able to return to the original faithfully. Do we have the original? No. But do we have the document that returns to the original reliably? Yes. What's inerrant? The original. But we've returned to it reliably. There is no doubt there are variations over the years, and there is no doubt we don't have full sets until much later, Look, there's lots of cases I work where I don't have any eyewitness come forward for 30 years. For 30 years. Then she comes forward and says, I was there, I saw this, why should I trust you? Hey, did you tell anybody, while I was married, I told my first husband. Let me talk to your first husband. And he confirms that she's been talking about this for 30 years. Well, now, although I don't have her testimony written down until 2015, I know from talking to her husband, like talking to Ignatius or Polycarp, what she said 30 years ago and we're good to go in court. Same thing happens with this. So if you were to compare, for example, Josephus' accounts, there are some variations between what Josephus claims in the first century and what Luke claims in the first century. And people will say, why should I trust Luke's account? when i got variations from Josephus, the Jewish historian. Well, because I have so many copies of Luke's account dating very early And I've got followers of Luke who testified about what they learned from Luke. And the problem I have with Josephus, I only have 120 copies, not a single copy until the 11th century. The vast majority of copies are 13th century or later. And no disciples of Josephus who are recording what Josephus taught in the first 11 centuries. My question is not, you know, why should I trust this guy? So I would look and say, well, it's about numbers, so if you just wanna write down the key manuscripts that we use today to produce the translation that you have, write them down. I've got a list of them for you, you ready? They're right there. Write quickly. Because <laughs> we use a lot of manuscripts to get to what we have today. Hope that helps you kind of, this is the whole issue. And by the way, Bart knows this, because what Bart does is he says, hey, I see some issues. Well, so do all the Orthodox. By the way, Bart was taught by Bruce Metzger, Bruce Metzger was looking at the exact same evidence set that Bart was looking at. There's not a single piece of evidence that Bart is looking at that Bruce was not aware of. Yet Bruce was an ordained pastor who says, I looked at everything. He was interviewed by Lee Strobel in '98 before he died. And he was very confident of where the evidence led. So don't, there's a lot of things that lead you to conclusions in criminal trials. Not all of it's evidence. A lot of it's what you bring to the evidence, it's presuppositions. And by the way, as Christians, we can also have bad presuppositions. We can presume it's right without testing it. So we have to really kind of be neutral in our presuppositions until we do a test. Okay. Okay, I think we've got a couple more. Sorry. I just want to make sure we covered that because that's an issue for a lot of young people. Go. Well, first I just want to say thank you for what you do. Um, Sure. I just, I had a quick question. Um, I was listening to um, I think it was uh, just a video on the internet and uh, a scholar was kind of dating uh, Mark off of where Irenaeus kind of put it, mm-hmm. um, and and I know he says Irenae, and Irenaeus would say uh, that I think it was just Mark that was written after Peter's departure. Mm-hmm. And do you think that could be interpreted not as death, but geographically, kind of to um, you know to go for the the earlier dating too? Yeah, and I can say that I, I this dating debate goes on forever and ever. And people will constantly uh, debate back and forth on it. And I've presented this, the same presentation i presented to you guys, in front of several people like Gary Habermas, who's a New Testament scholar, and Dan Wallace, New Testament. And I'll tell you, we would say we're off by about five years. About five years, Dan and I would disagree on the dating on this. But I'll make my case for why I think it's early, I made it for you tonight. It starts with the book of Acts, what's missing from the book of Acts, and then the heel-to-toe progression of what precedes the book of Acts from Luke. I showed you that. When I showed it to Dan, Dan says, yeah, but you know, I'm not quite so sure that, that, that uh, Paul is talking about Luke's gospel when he quotes Deuteronomy and the gospel of Luke. He may just be talking about a concept that was floating around that he was familiar with that ends up in Luke's gospel. I said, well, that's, what, so, okay, that's one interpretation, but Paul says, the scripture says, and then he gives you two quotes, one which is clearly existing in written scripture and the other one isn't. And just to me, if you're going to interpret this one of two ways, I think the stronger interpretation. So I, I would say, if you're going to make a case for this, fine. Make the case evidentially. Here's what I do know. I've asked this expert, why does Bart, why did a lot of these uh, skeptics date the Gospels post-70 A.D.? 70 A.D. is really the date that most Gospel uh, authorities will divide on. More Orthodox, like me, would say we're prior to 70 A.D. More skeptical would say we're after. Why is 70 A.D. the divider line? because that's the destruction of the temple. And the problem is, Jesus accurately predicts it. So if that's an accurate prediction, and it's supernatural, we're more likely to believe that as as Orthodox Christians. If you're a skeptic, you're gonna say, no, he wrote that after the destruction of the temple, and that's why that's in there, because he already knew it happened. So it turns out that most of the time the dating dividing line is really about a presupposition about supernaturalism. Also, they believe it's easier to write these accounts once all the eyewitnesses are dead because there are miracles in those accounts, and clearly those didn't happen. So you have to make sure that all the original eyewitnesses are passed away before you can write those. So I think there are two animating factors to late dating. They're not based on the fact that we found some manuscript that now forces us into 70, post-70 AD. They're not based on textual evidence. I think even Bart would tell you. Bart, as a matter of fact, would actually incline toward earlier day, not as early as me, but he would say that the, the most accurate, uh, the, earliest, the earliest, the earliest stories about Jesus, he would say by far, are the canonical four canonical gospels. Period. So any claim that you know the Gospel of Thomas or any other non-canonical is somehow of, real, of, of equal value, even Bart would say that's not true. The four canonicals are the earliest. All right. Go, last more. question. I think you make a very compelling case, and I like your evidentiary approach. My question is have you ever test flown this on a primarily Jewish audience? No, this is a question I get all the time. You know, have you done this kind of work either and from a different audience? Or, or with you done students, it... Jewish students? Oh, I work with students constantly. So I'm on university, I was on 10 university campuses last year Ohio State, Arizona State, University of Kentucky, Rutgers. I mean, I, if you ask me to come, I'm going to go. And so we're doing this in open campus forums, and you get great questions. Great skeptics will come up afterwards and ask you good questions. But you know, for the most part, I'm I'm not really... um, I'm passionate about what I believe, because I think what what C.S. Lewis said is true. If this is not true, it's of no importance. But if it is true, it's of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. And I believe that's the case. But what I'm not passionate about is have, I have to have it be true. So, for example, when I get evidence that points to a suspect, I don't care that it's that guy. I'm not passionate about making sure it's that. I don't care, I care less of who it is. I just know who it is, and now we've got to go forward. But I don't get emotionally involved with the guy in process, you know, we're getting ready to prosecute. I couldn't care less who it is. And I felt the same way about this. So, when I present this to you, I'm not going to be able to prove this to you. I would never, by the way, you won't ever hear me say that. I'm not going to say I'm proving this to you. I'm going to show you the evidence that was compelling to me. Whether it proves anything, that's on you. Every juror gets to decide what's proved to them. I can make the pitch. They get to decide. And you try to stay unemotional about it. I think so your I passion would make it. you a great evangelist
0: to Well, the I, I can
1: tell you that what I... One, let me say one last thing before we end then. And that's this question you'll have asked. Well, if you've done this kind of work on Christianity, have you done this kind of work on every other religious system to see if they'll measure up? Maybe you missed something. That gets asked a lot. Now I did it on Mormonism, I can tell you I became a Christian the same day I became a not Mormon Because I had family, that were Mormons, who wanted me to become a Mormon So I read the Book of Mormon first So I, the same test applied on the Book of Mormon, it doesn't, doesn't do well for the Book of Mormon It falls down pretty quickly But, but, so I, I, I'd have, but I can tell you, that you don't have to investigate every worldview to be sure that this one is true When I finally take someone to jail like that guy who killed his wife, 45-year-old white male in Orange County, there are probably 2 million 45-year-old white males in Orange County. I don't go in and have to also make a case against the involvement of the other 399,000, you know what I'm saying? Once I've got good reason to believe this is my guy, you go forward with that guy. It's not my burden to also disprove everything else. If I've got good reason to believe he's my guy, I'm done. And so here, when I had good reason to believe this was reliable, I was done. Now, Tim, you're going to finish something real quick. Can yeah, you do don't that? go away. Okay.
0: Um, thank you for doing that, by the First. way. At this point, everyone usually applauds loudly. And... No, no, no! Don't! I blew it! I'm going to do that. I blew it! I don't! And then I have to tell them to be quiet so that I can give him a gift. So. Um, oh, awesome! And then you can... he's going to stick around out here. You can get his book and have him inscribe it, or ask him questions until the wee hours of the night. We are so glad you came. Thank you. Thank you for being with us. And I have a, a little gift. It's a plaque that says, with thanks to Jay Warner Wallace for bringing faith to life. And we do thank you oh, very, very awesome. much.
1: Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you. thank
0: you. Very cool. Very cool. Very cool. Thanks so much.